Well, good morning, City Light. If we haven't met, my name is Joe, and I serve as a pastor here at City Light Midtown. Uh, I want to apologize in advance if my voice gives out uh, this morning. I uh, had a silent retreat all of last weekend, and I came back without a voice. And so I don't know if the Holy Spirit's trying to teach me something. It's not that I talk too much. I've determined that. Um, So we'll try to get through this thing together. Uh, Growing up, we did not have cable in my house. Uh, which meant that I was relegated to watching the Saturday morning cartoons on network TV. So instead of watching Beavis and Butthead or South Park, like my friends, I watched Looney Tunes, which in hindsight, I'm very thankful for now that I didn't have to be uh, submitted to that stuff. But even though at the time I was annoyed with that, uh, there was one character from Looney Tunes that I actually grew to love. And that is Wiley Coyote. Who here has seen something with Wiley Coyote in it? Almost everybody, right? There he is, right there. If you remember, Wiley Coyote was always hungry and wanted nothing more than to put that Roadrunner character over an open flame and have him for dinner. Uh, But no matter how much he tried, the Roadrunner was always just out of his reach. He would hatch crazy plans, he would go after him, he would, it would look like he was going to get him, and, and then at the last minute, the roadrunner would escape. And that's the plot. Over 60 years of, of short episodes, the same thing every single time. But what I came to appreciate about Wiley is no matter how many times he fell off a cliff, or had an anvil smash his head, or exploded himself with a rocket, or ran face first into a wall. No matter how much all of that happened, he was undeterred. He kept on his mission, his ultimate culinary mission. There is a word for this. It's called resilience. Resilience is the capacity to withstand difficulty. Wiley Coyote had a tremendous capacity to withstand difficulty. And that's what makes him a really likable character. And this week, as I was thinking about it, it dawned on me that many of my favorite movie and TV characters of all time have resiliency as a primary trait. Samwise Gamgee and his loyalty to the mission and to his friend Frodo. Atticus Finch and his relentless defense of Tom Robinson in the Jim Crow South. Jean Valjean laying himself aside over and over and over for the good of Cassette. And Nigo Montoya and his relentless pursuit of the six-fingered man. There is something about resiliency, the ability to keep on your mission despite extreme difficulty to withstand challenge and maintain your integrity. I think resilience is something that we would all desire for ourselves. I think resilience is something we would all desire for our loved ones. We know that things will not be easy and that we will experience all levels of difficulty. But if we were able to write out our own stories that included the difficulties that we know, we would display resiliency in the face of those difficulties and still achieve our mission. In our text today, 
we're going to see some starkly contrasting pictures. On the one hand, we have Jesus faced with trial, difficulty, anxieties, decisions to make, and he responds with incredible resilience and moves forward in the mission of the Father and in kind his mission as well. On the other hand, we're going to see Jesus' disciples. They too are faced with trial, with difficulty, with anxieties, and with decisions to make. But instead of showing resilience, they show weakness and they panic. They sleep instead of praying as Jesus told them to. They lash out and fight when Jesus is peaceably handing himself over. One of them betrays Jesus because he worries that things will not work out in his best interest. And so he's going to take things into his own hands. Both Jesus and his disciples experience deep anxiety, but Jesus doesn't panic while his disciples do. And what's the difference? I think the difference is actually a little bit surprising. The difference is not because he's God. It is true, he is God. But we get a picture of Jesus today in his full humanity. And in that and through that, we see the difference here is actually him tying himself to the Father through prayer. It's through prayer. That's the difference that we see in the text today. Jesus cries out to the Father. He aligns his own will with the Father's will. And then he calmly steps into what the Father has. Jesus has confidence in the will of the Father. And he was resilient in the face of deep anxiety and an immediate future of arrest, torture, and death. As a contrast in our text, the disciples are not praying as they're instructed to. The result for them is panic, an ill-advised attempt at either revolt or protection, and eventually scattering and denial. Judas uniquely responds with, with betrayal. But all of them have the same thing in common, a lack of prayer and a lack of resilience. Whatever it is that they're relying on, whatever they have confidence in is shaken. And so you see the fruit of that in their behavior in the text today. And church, I think this is where this lands on us today. The same choice actually lies before us today. Because here's the deal, we will encounter suffering. We will have trials. We will have anxieties. And so the question is, will we panic or will we pray? Will we find resilience in placing our confidence in God or find it shaken when it's put somewhere else? It seems so simple, but it's also so important. In prayer, we humbly express that we need God. That's what prayer is. We're just humbly going and saying, God, we need you. I need you. And through prayer, we choose to trust in and depend on God and his care for us. Through prayer, we encounter a God who says he will never leave us nor forsake us. Through prayer, we tie our wills to God, who says that he works out all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Even when those things that are a part of the all things are pain, suffering, and trial. 
And so, church, my question for you this morning is, do you want to be resilient? Do you want to be resilient? Do you want to be able to withstand the difficulties in this life? If the answer to that question is yes, then I would encourage you to lean forward this morning because Jesus is going to show us how to do that. We have two scenes this morning we're going to walk through in which I've entitled Prayer in Private and Prayer in Action. So let's jump into the first section, Prayer in Private. Look with me at Luke chapter 22, verses 39 to 46. And he came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives, and the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down on the ground. And when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Okay, so some quick context to set our scene here. Now, this is now the last 24 hours of Jesus' life here on earth. Importantly, Jesus has just gotten done warning his disciples that things are about to change like very dramatically for them. He says, hey, do you remember when you went out before and everything went great? People welcomed you into their towns. They wanted you. They wanted the message that you had. Well, that's now changing. That is no longer going to necessarily be the case. Things are about to get much, much Harder. So Jesus has told his disciples this, that things are going to get much harder. And now we see him going out to the Mount of Olives, which Luke says was his custom. Now, this is about a mile walk from the temple just outside of the city. And what it sounds like is that Jesus and his disciples have been going out to the Mount of Olives uh, at night and staying there, as opposed to staying in the city uh, during the week of Passover. This is important later, so bookmark that. Now, I want us to notice some repetition in our section. And this repetition is going to clue us into the emphasis of this text. Our first and last verse are verse 40 and 46. So we're going to look at those first. Verse 40, he tells his disciples to pray that they may not enter into temptation. And then verse 46, he again says the same thing. Pray that you may not enter into temptation. So those two verses are at the beginning and the end. And then what's happening in between them? Verse 41, and he withdrew from them about a a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed. And then in verse 44, and being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. So a quick Bible study tip, whenever you see repetition, pay attention to that. The author is trying to highlight something. And in this case... Luke is trying to highlight what for us? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah, absolutely. Now, like I mentioned, there's a contrast set up here too. Jesus is going to pray. And he tells his disciples to also pray. And then you get two very very different pictures of what's happening. 
Jesus goes and he kneels down, which is not normally the custom. Normally, uh, Jewish men would stand when they prayed, but he kneels down. He humbles himself. He's praying earnestly, a stone's throw away from them. He tells them to pray, and then he goes and prays as an example uh, for them. And what happens? The disciples are sleeping. Jesus is praying earnestly. The disciples are sleeping. So that's your contrasting picture. But to me, as I'm reading this, the, the, the thing that's most surprising is the picture of Jesus and not the picture of the disciples. If you've been paying attention at all in Luke, you kind of expect the disciples to mess up here, right? They're the, they're the definition of one step forward and two steps back. That's just like they're told to pray, they fall asleep. Okay, yeah, that sounds about right. That sounds about what we have seen this whole time. You come to expect it. Not that it's okay, but it's just not surprising. However, the picture that we get of Jesus, to me, is is very surprising. We see him dealing with significant anxiety, asking this cup to pass from him. He's sweating profusely like drops of blood which may be literal drops of blood or maybe a metaphor like the ESV seems to translate it here. But whatever it is, Jesus is under extreme duress, and he's showing it physically, emotionally, and mentally. Now, why is this surprising? Why is this picture of Jesus so surprising? Well, I think for me, and I wonder if you can relate, I frequently see Jesus as this superhuman type figure. Like, like basically God with skin type character, not unlike Hercules. And, and, and I think to myself, well, sure. He's, he's been able to do all of these things throughout his life. He's been able to resist temptation. He's been able to do all of this. But, you know, he's superhuman. Sure, he's able to stand up to temptation, but he basically has superpowers. And so I can't really, like, how am I supposed to relate to that? How am I supposed to be encouraged by Jesus standing up to temptation when the man has superpowers, right? That's kind of how I'm thinking through as I look at Jesus. In turn, I'm thinking he probably also can't relate with me because I'm not that. Like, so, but what we need to understand is that's actually not the picture of Jesus that we get here in our text and in the Bible as a whole. Jesus is not a mixture of God and human. He's fully human, and he's fully God. And what we need to know about that is one does not lessen or dilute the other. The fact that he's human doesn't lessen the fact that he's God, and the fact that he's God doesn't dilute the fact that he's fully human. So he is not 50% human, 50% God. He is 100% human, 100% God. Now... If your mind has a hard time wrapping around that, bending around that, welcome to the club. That, it's not easy. You're like, Joe, I took a science class. I know that this is not how things work. This, this is like if you told a little boy, okay, listen, you can be a combination of strong and smart. And, and you can decide you're going to split that down the middle. You're going to be 50% strong and 50% smart. Or you can make it weighted one way or the other. You can be 90% smart uh, and 10% strong. You can be 80% strong and 20% smart. What do you want to be? 
And this little boy looks at you and he says, I want to be 100% strong. And you're like, yes, you're going to be super strong. And hopefully someone will be there to help you make decisions throughout your life. And then he looks at you and he says, and I want to be 100% smart. And you're like, well, clearly that ship has already sailed. Uh, In fact, in second thought, you might just want to focus on being strong because math is not going to be your strong point. Because we know 200% doesn't go into 100%, right? That is not how it works. But this is the part of the mystery of the incarnation and the nature of Jesus. He is fully human and fully God neither of which dilute the other. And the picture that we get today especially highlights the human nature of Jesus. And this is why this is important. This means that he has all the same emotions, the same doubts, the same anxieties, the same hunger, the same temptation, you name it, as all of us. He can relate to all of us. And so we see him here asking the Father to remove this cup from him. Jesus knows what's coming. He knows he's about to take on the Father's wrath on behalf of all of the world's sin. He knows that this will secure the ultimate defeat of Satan, sin, and death. He knows that this will reconcile people to God, and yet he still asks, Lord, if there is any other way to accomplish this, please take it away. Please take it away. Then we see him in such distress that he's sweating profusely. This is a jarring image, but it's an important image. It's important that we see Jesus as he is here fully human. And Hebrews 4.15 tells us a little bit about why it's so important. It says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So what we need to know is we don't have a superhuman Savior who is detached from the suffering that we experience. We have a fully human Savior who can sympathize with us in all of our suffering. And guess what? The news gets a little bit better, actually, because not only does he sympathize with us, he is still in the practice of praying. Romans 8.34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that. Who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who indeed is interceding for us? So that means what we have, church, is this fully human Savior who sympathizes with us in all of our trials, all of them, and suffering. And he's also interceding. He is praying for us right now at the right hand of the Father. This is really, really good news. You have a compassionate God who sympathizes with you, who is praying for you right now. Let me just bring this quickly into our living rooms for us. Have you ever suffered from or experienced crippling anxiety? Have you ever been there? If you have, you need to know Jesus is too right here. And it doesn't go away when he prays either. It's still there after he's comforted and strengthened by the angel. 
When you experience anxiety, you need to know he doesn't look at you with disappointment. He looks at you with compassion. He knows he's been there. Have any of you ever known what God wants you to do, but you don't want to do it? Jesus has experienced the same thing. He's experiencing the same thing right here, right now. He has been there. He understands what you're going through. He's not ashamed of you. He draws near to you. Have you ever been betrayed by someone close to you? Have you experienced the sting of a friend talking badly about you behind your back? The pain of a spouse or significant other choosing someone or something over you. The injustice of someone at work or school sabotaging you to make you look bad. Church, we need to know Jesus is experiencing all of that with his disciples here and with Judas. We have a fully human Savior who can identify with everything, everything that we have gone through and will go through. And so I want to finish up this section by looking at Jesus and saying, okay, this, this picture of this fully human Savior, what, what is he doing? How does he tap into this resilience? What is going on? And so I want to look at the prayer he actually prays in the midst of suffering as instructional for us. So let's look at how he prays. Verse, verse 42. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. Verse 44. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And so what we see in Jesus from his prayers is that he is honest, he is earnest, and he is humble. He is honest, he's earnest, and he's humble. This is a mini lament that Jesus prays here. He is honest about how he's feeling. He's honest about what he's thinking about this whole situation. So what that means is we can be honest in our prayers. God already knows our thoughts. We're not hiding anything from him. We can be fully honest with our prayers because Jesus shows us that we can. He's earnest. He knows that the Father is the only answer to everything he is bringing. The Bible says that he could call down legions of angels if he wanted to, but he knows, no, 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 no. I need to be earnest in my pursuit of the will of the Father. We must be earnest in our prayers. How often are we earnest about taking things into our own hands when we get nervous or anxious about something? What if we were just as earnest about taking it to the Father, saying, Lord, your will be done? And not mine. We must be earnest in our prayers. We must actually believe that the Father is the only answer for us. He's humble. He says, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. This is the most important part of his prayer. He did not allow his anxiety. He did not allow his desire to get out of this, to lead him into sin. As humans, we've got to recognize that our desires are fickle and prone to fault. We can feel very, very strongly about something and be very, very wrong about it. We can justify why we feel the way we feel pretty expertly and still be wrong. 
We must humble ourselves in prayer and say, not my will, but yours be done. Yours be done. Sometimes our will and the Father's will will be in harmony. Sometimes they will not. But we have to recognize in those situations that we're not the Father. He's the Father. He knows. His will is so much better than ours. So in our prayers, church, be honest, be earnest, be humble. Like I mentioned, a significant part of this text is the contrast between Jesus and his disciples. Some of this we've seen already. He's praying. They're sleeping. And now we're about to see the fruit of that in their behavior in our next section. So uh, the next section is this prayer in action. Look with me at verses 47 to 53. While he was still speaking, there came a crowd. And a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? And when those who were around him saw what would follow, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and officers of the temple and elders who had come out against him, have you come out as against a robber? with swords and clubs. When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So here comes Judas, who going out on a limb here has not been in his prayer closet asking the father what he should do and bending his will to him. In fact, we saw a few verses ago that Satan entered into Jesus and or in, entered into Judas in order to betray Jesus. Now, we don't know everything that has gone on with Judas and all the things he might be thinking, but we know that he hasn't loved how Jesus' ministry has gone recently. He complained about, the, about expensive ointments being used to anoint Jesus, and he's been taking advantage of being the one carrying the money bag, skimming stuff off the top, and now that he sees that Jesus is not going to be the king he thought he would be, he decides, I'm going to cut my losses, and I'm going to make a profit and I'm going to betray Jesus, one of his closest friends, who he's spent the last three years of his life following, being a part of the inner circle. Now, as I uh, started to read this text, it re- I recognized just something that never really computed with me, and I, I had a bit of a hard time understanding, and that is, how is Judas showing Jesus to these religious leaders, how is that betrayal? And what I mean by that is this. Jesus' ministry was public. People knew who he was. So why did they need him to betray Jesus by showing him who he is? It would be like someone coming to me and being like, hey, Joe, we need your help. You're the only one that can do this. We need your help uh, to entrap the mayor of Omaha to, to figure out a way to, to get her. And I'm like, okay, you know what? I don't want, okay, whatever. What do I need to do? Tell us who she is. Like, what? It's a public figure. You know who this person is. So this didn't really compute for me. Uh, But as I was uh, reading some of the context clues this week, and as well as a few commentaries, it helped give me some insight into this. One of the big things that we need to understand is that contextually, the religious leaders did not want to arrest Jesus during the day. And they didn't want to arrest Jesus during the day because they feared the revolt of the people. Because the people loved Jesus. They, they held him as a prophet. They had seen all the healings and everything like that. And so they feared uh, people seeing them do the thing that they wanted to do. 
which, by the way, red flag. If you want to do something but don't want anybody to see you, if you're not going to the bathroom, like, that's, that's a problem. Um, but here's the, here's the issue. The religious leaders would not have known where to find Jesus at night. Remember, this scene started with Jesus going to the Mount of Olives, and Luke said, as was his custom. However, the only people who would have known about that custom were his closest friends. Judas, being a close friend, knew where he would be in order to lead these religious leaders to him, to be able to arrest him under the cover of darkness and avoid a revolt. They would have never arrested him in front of everyone else. So for us, imagine Christianity were illegal in our country uh, by punishment of death. That has happened in the history of the world in many different countries. Uh, And so what we had to do is we have to meet in secret in smaller groups. Uh, And we never meet at the same place twice in a row, and we come and go at different times so as not to arouse suspicion. But someone from our group who we trusted, who we had been with for years, decided to lead the authorities straight to us because there was a reward available for doing such things. That is what is happening here with Judas. He's leading these religious leaders directly to them so they can execute their plan under the cover of darkness. This is the power of darkness. And what does Jesus do? Does he chastise Judas? Does he take a Bud Crawford swing at him before he's arrested? No. He just calmly acknowledges what Judas is doing. Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? He shows Judas he knows, but he also lets him do it. Remember, he was just on the mountain praying, Lord, your will and not my will be done. And so after this, anxiety fills the rest of the disciples, who, remember, were not praying on that mountain. They were sleeping. And they ask, should we strike with the sword? Now, if you remember from last week, they have two swords with them which we learned uh, in the section before this. And, and there's a whole gang of people who have come out to arrest Jesus. And in their panic, they wonder if they should strike with their two swords. Then one of them, who we find out from the Gospel of John, is Peter. Uh, Peter decides he's not waiting for an answer, and he takes a swing with his sword, cutting off the right ear of the servant of the high priest. Now, what we need to understand here is that this is not benign. Like, Peter's trying to kill this guy. Whether he was coming down from the top and the thing glanced off to the side, or more likely, he took a, like a decapitating type swing and the guy ducked and it shaved off his ear, Peter's really trying to kill this guy. He's trying to take his life. Peter, who wasn't praying, who wasn't aligning his will to that of the Father, responds to anxiety with panic. With panic, I've got to do something. And how does Jesus respond? He says, no, stop, enough of this. And he heals this this guy's ear, which, by the way, is the final miracle before his death. The religious leaders in a couple of hours are going to accuse him of insurrection and mutiny. But Jesus clearly is not interested in those things. He heals the guy's ear. He stops any form or view of insurrection or mutiny. And so the contrasting pictures that we have here are the disciples making a mess of things and Jesus calmly moving towards the Father's will. Jesus prayed. The disciples did not. The disciples act out of their anxiety and panic. Jesus calmly walks forward in mission. 
The circumstances didn't change. He still had this cup to drink, but he willingly walked forward because he trusted and had confidence in the Father's will. And as I look out on this church, I see many of you who have responded to suffering and trial and anxiety with prayerful trust. I know someone here who's had multiple bouts of brain cancer that have halted life plans on several occasions, humbling himself and praying for the Father's will to be done. I know spouses who have felt the sting of betrayal from their husband or their wife, either in adultery or some other way, praying to the Father and seeking forgiveness and and reconciliation if possible. I know a few women whose husbands who have decided to call it quits on them and leave them picking up the pieces of their lives. And they're praying with trembling hands, asking for the Father's will in their lives. I know many students who have wrestled with their identity and felt like failures at school or whose life plans have been, have been upended, and yet they're seeking the voice of God, submitting their will to his. I was at the hospital just a couple of weeks ago with a couple who tragically lost their first baby. And as we sat there and prayed, they asked God, show us your will. Show us your will, God. I could go on and on. Life rarely goes how we think it will. That spouse that we longed for never shows up in our life. Kids grow up to reject the faith we so earnestly tried to instill in them. Prayer and action doesn't mean that we get everything we want. Prayer and action means despite that, we fix our eyes on the Father. We acknowledge our dependence on him. We are dependent on you. And we choose, we choose to trust that his will is bigger and better than ours. I want to close us up this morning with a warning, a little bit of hope, and a challenge. The warning and the hope come in the same package. If you notice, Judas and the disciples have the same basic thing going on. Judas may have been more overt, but they're all betraying Jesus. All of them are. And so what that means is we can actually identify with all of them. We have all sought our own will above Jesus. We have betrayed him in word and action. The great irony of this story is that Jesus is going to accomplish a work for the very people here who are betraying him, who are abandoning him, who are acting out of anxiety and not listening to him. Jesus is going to the cross to pay once and for all for the sins of everyone who has betrayed, abandoned, and sinned against God, including you and me. And in the contrasting story of Judas and the other disciples, we get a picture of our two choices. We can turn to Jesus or we cannot. We learn in Matthew and Acts that Judas, in despair, went and hung himself after Jesus was crucified. He did not turn in repentance and seek the forgiveness that Jesus offered him through his death and resurrection. He rightly saw what he did. He was filled with guilt. But he had no hope. He didn't turn and trust in the grace and forgiveness of Christ, and he died a death of despair. That's the warning. We can miss Jesus. We can completely miss him. The other disciples, however, did look to Jesus for grace and forgiveness. They were just as guilty as Judas, just as guilty, but they experienced grace like they had never 
believed possible. And in Acts chapter 4, which is also written by our gospel writer Luke, we get this amazing picture of how far they had come since this moment where they were sleeping on the mountainside when Jesus told them to pray, sleeping through this important moment. And what, what's happening in Acts 4 is that Peter and John were arrested and brought before the authorities. The last person that was arrested was Jesus, and it didn't go well for him in that. Now Peter and John are arrested. They're the main leaders of the church, and there's a good chance that they're going to be put to death as well. It's a very dangerous situation for all who called themselves followers of Christ. But in a miracle, they were released and threatened and told not to proclaim the name of Jesus anymore. Otherwise, things were going to get really, really bad for them. And they left and they went back to the other believers. And what did they do? They had an immediate prayer gathering right there. They weren't going to sleep on this one. And listen to their end of their prayer in Acts chapter 4, starting in verse 29. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness where before they'd sought to preserve their life, now they're asking for boldness to go out with this name of Jesus, to continue to spread his name that was becoming increasingly dangerous for them to do. These men and women would become some of the most resilient people in history. Despite oppression from everywhere, the gospel would spread into the whole world. And church, we need to know the hope is that it's never too late to depend on God in prayer. It's never too late to humble yourself in front of the Father. It's never too late to ask for his will to be done above yours. Remember, he sympathizes with you, with your temptations, with your desires, with your anxieties. Turn to him. Okay, and now a quick challenge, and then I'll sit down. I don't know what your prayer life looks like, but this week, take a step. A step. Very simply, take a step. Take 10 minutes every morning or three times this week to pray. Sit down in the quiet and pray. Pray that your will would be bent to the Father's. Be honest with Him. How are you feeling? What are your desires? What are your fears? What's going on in your mind? What do you not want to do? What do you want to do? And then submit your will to His. Father, not my will, but yours be done. Resilience is not going to be found in relying on our own strength, but putting our trust in his strength. When you choose to pray, you are making the choice to depend on God. I want to encourage all of us to take comfort that we can approach God in our weakness. He has been there, he knows, and he has compassion on us. Come to him in your weakness with honesty and then submit yourself to him. Father, your will be done. On top of this, we're a family of God who's instructed to pray for one another. And so as we end our worship gathering today, we're going to have a prayer team in the back. I want to encourage you to go and be prayed for. You'll be able to identify them. They'll have blue lanyards on, and they would love to pray for you over anything that might be going on in your life. I would encourage you during worship to go back and do that. So why don't you go ahead and stand with me? 
I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to worship together. Jesus, thank you that you are a God who can identify with us. You are a God who has experienced all of the things that we have experienced. But Lord, you showed us that the way is not to control things ourselves, but to submit ourselves to the will of the Father. And so God, I pray for us as a church that we would see your example of prayer, that we would be honest and earnest and humble. We wouldn't try to hide things from you because you see our thoughts, you see our emotions, you know everything. Lord, would we be a willing and joyful open book to you in prayer? But Lord, would we also submit ourselves to you? Lord, your will and not my will be done. This is your kingdom that you are building. Please use us in it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.